is Safe Space with Dr. Anne. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live show devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel uncomfortable, ashamed, afraid, or just really vulnerable. Tonight's show is part of a series on male sexuality. My guest is Deb Dana, and we'll be talking about working with sex offenders. Deb is a licensed clinical social worker who works at the Island Institute for Trauma Recovery here in Saco, Maine. The Island Institute works with both offenders and survivors of sexual abuse, and also with their families. Welcome to Safe Space, Deb. Thank you. I want to ask you, given how much fear and judgment there is in our culture about this subject, how did you choose to go into this work? Mm -hmm. Hmm. So I started, started this process. I was working with survivors, and... I kept getting asked the question, why did he do it? And why did he choose me? Or why did he choose my child? And I found that I couldn't answer that question. I could answer that question from reading books or um, reading case studies, but I wanted to answer that question from knowing from the offender's perspective. And I wanted to be able to bring that back to the survivors that I worked with. So... um, that led me to pursue working with offenders and really feel as though working both sides, the the full circle of sexual abuse is the way to serve both the survivors in the best way that I can and to serve the offenders. So knowing both sides of that. So in other words, you serve the survivor the best by really having a deep understanding of kind of the mind of the offender. Yes, and 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 to truly be able to answer their questions about why. Why did he do it? Both in general around offenders and also specific to um the person who hurt them. Um because you know, we're we're blessed at the Islands Institute to be able to take in whole families and and have that process really work work for every member of that family. So, yeah. And I also think working with offenders is a way of helping there not be more victims. Prevention. Yes. Right. So I want to ask you about offenders. Um, You know, the questions that your initial, your clients were asking about why and who, and Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. who who, who is an offender? Who offends? So typical offenders... Um, and I guess I'll give you a few numbers, don't want to kill you with numbers, but give you a few numbers here. Um, over 90% of sexual offending takes place within a family. So if you think about who is an offender, it's um, dad and grandpa and brother and uncle um, and sister and mom. I have to say that most offending, the great majority of offending is done by men, um, or at least the reported offending because sexual abuse is probably the least reported crime. So statistics are hard. But um, when we look at sexual offending, we look within the families. That's where that's where it happens. Um, when you say within the families, could that also include like the neighborhood, mm-hmm. the neighbor boy or the neighbor? It could. It's, it, it's or friend of the family, you know, good friend. It, it's very rarely someone unknown to the person who is offended very rarely. 
so that, um, you know, we teach stranger danger, and it's certainly important to teach, but when we look at sexual offending, we keep trying to ask people to, to look within rather than without. Right. So, in fact, if over 90% of sexual abuse happens from within people who are known well to the yes. person, who, yeah, it's, strangers are not the big risk here. Right. And right. I'm guessing that that fact is very, very complicated for the person yeah. who experiences it because it was presumably someone that they trusted and exactly. loved. Exactly. Yes. Yes. It's hard for the person who was offended because of that. Um, the The trauma of being offended and then the betrayal of it being someone who is supposed to take care of you or be caring of you. And then um, the trauma the, uh, to the family, you know, the ripping apart of a family or the trying to stay together of a family, neither one being um, a choice that's supported. So Right, so there's all these terrible divided loyalties mm-hmm. among the other family members. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so I want to get into that in a, a, in a mm-hmm. minute. So so the people who are the offenders are mm-hmm. intimate family and friends. Yes. And... What is their story? I mean, so I want to ask you the question that your clients were asking you. Why do they offend? Is it because they were abused themselves? A great majority of men who offend were sexually offended themselves as children. So that is that is a piece, certainly. Um, sex offenders, and I guess I'll put this in here now, and pedophiles are different categories. Um, a pedophile is truly aroused to um, young children, and that is their prime sexual motivation. And they won't have other sexual relationships of of an appropriate peer um, Ever. age, right? Ever, even with treatment. Pedophiles are the pedophiles in the world of sex offending are are a very small percentage. So our experience working with them is not um, as great as working with, you know, it's kind of odd to call a regular sex offender, but a regular sex offender whose prime um, sexual attraction is not to children. There certainly is an aspect of arousal in sex offending because otherwise it wouldn't be a sexual offense. It would be something else. But the motivation is around meeting a need an internal need that's not being met, a feeling of not being loved or not being um, good enough or um, not being able to, to manage feelings, to feeling out of control and using sexual offending as a way to, to get those needs met. An attempt to get those needs met is really what most sex offenders are doing. So in other words, the fact that the child actually loves them mm-hmm. is part of... Mm-hmm. What makes a child vulnerable at some level? Exactly. Because it's precisely that right. love and trust that right. feeds. Yep, yeah, sure. The natural qualities of children are, are what offenders take advantage of. We want our kids to be loving. We want them to respect adults. We want them to, you know, feel, um, give hugs and kisses in the family. These are natural qualities. They're playful. They look up to their grown-ups. So these are the same qualities that offenders use in their grooming process. So what does that mean? A grooming process is um, the ways a person begins to engage a child so that they can progressively go further and further towards the sexual offending that they ultimately end up doing. 
So, so what would that look like? How, how sort of sketch that out for me? Well, it could be um, being um, having a special relationship, um, buying special things. You're my special daughter. You're you're my special son. We'll go get the the orange popsicle. You know, you come with me. We'll go for rides in the car. So making it more of a, a specialness that often happens. Right, so there you have the child's need. Yes. To be special. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Being used in a way. Right. Okay, right. so there's grooming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Say more. Uh, what happens? And so that, and then that's what prepares the person to trust, or how does it go? That, that's the, the grooming <coughs> process, and, and grooming takes in grooming the person who is going to be the victim, grooming the rest of the family system to not look and see what's going on, grooming the environment so that there's access. So there's lots of components to grooming. And when you say that, grooming the family system to not notice, mm-hmm. how would you do that? What, what does that mean? Well, sometimes it's as simple as um, working different shifts and taking advantage of, of that. So, I see. Or it could be um, you go out and and enjoy your day off and I'll stay home with the kids, those sorts of things that in normal family systems are perfectly wonderful things that happen happen. all the time. That's right. Exactly. I see. But they basically give you access alone without Mm -hmm. another adult supervising. Right. I see. But I was imagining that you were thinking also about kind of rules about silencing or secrets or ways that it's not safe to Mm -hmm. talk about things Mm -hmm. like that. Right. And the the family system really... um, has a lot of the family story and what's okay in this family. And, in, in you know, we, we often do with the people we work with, fill in the blank in this family. And we'll do in this family. And we can do, a you know, in the beginning of treatment and then in the end of treatment we know where we want to go. So in this family in the beginning, um, when daddy's mad, everybody goes away. Or people don't talk about their feelings. Or everybody has to be quiet when mom's sleeping. So these are the kinds of in this family rules that mm-hmm. that get embedded in a system, sure. And that can support something like this exactly. to happen. Exactly. Yeah, this is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space. And I'm talking to Deb Dana about working with sex offenders. So I just want to recapitulate what you just said because it feels really powerful that sex offenders, a very small percentage of them, are pedophiles whose only sexual attraction is to children, mm-hmm. and they're probably not going to be able to change that. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of sex offenders are actually people who are drawn to adults, but they may be using a special relationship with a child to actually meet other needs. Exactly. Uh, and, and is, you know, we all, I think there's such a cultural assumption that sex offenders have a terrible recidivism rate and mm-hmm. that they're going to repeat the crime and you can't mm-hmm. ever trust them, this kind right. of thing. Is there a difference in the in the repeat rate between pedophiles and sex offenders? I'm, I'm going to answer you with the the recidivism rate, the reoffending rate that um, does not include pedophiles. Because if we put pedophiles in there, it really skews the data. And because there's such a small mm. amount, we're going to take them out. And there's a lot of um, discussion about the reoffending rate. So I'm going to use the the figures that the federal government puts out, and it's about 14% 
of people who have been convicted of a sexual offense reoffend, 14%. So, which in fact, is, that's much lower yes. than what the culture assumes. Yes, and it's, it is, except for murderers, the least, um, the, the criminals who are the least likely to reoffend, in fact. Okay, wait a second. So, except for murderers, mm-hmm. who, in fact, don't tend to repeat murders, mm-hmm. other than sort of drug offenses mm-hmm. or thefts, mm-hmm. They're least likely to offend, yes, to repeat. of any other criminal. They're the least likely. Yep. It's so striking because so many of our policies seem based on the idea that right. repetition is to be practically expected. Right. Yes. Right. So then my the sense I had when you say you take pedophiles out of that equation is that the risk of repetition is much higher with yes. pedophiles. Yes. I see. Yes. Yeah. And the, the, you know, the, the people you read about and the cases you see on TV are also the non-norm for sexual offending. So they get, they get all the publicity. Of course they do. Yeah. So uh, another question I want to ask you is, in your experience of working with offenders, are they remorseful? Yes. Yes. And part of their treatment is, is to get to that place of empathy. Empathy for the person they hurt for their actual direct victim as well as for the secondary victims, the rest of the family members who they have hurt. And part of their treatment process is to go through a clarification process in which with the people we work with, we're fortunate that we often are working with each member of the family so we can have family sessions in which this happens. If that can't happen, the offender's uh, responsibility is still to write a letter that outlines for the person he hurt what he knows about why he did it, how he groomed this person, how he used that child's um, qualities, and to take responsibility and to to offer a sense of feeling their pain and having remorse for it. So, absolutely part of part of the process. And that, again, is incredibly healing for someone who has been offended to either sit in a room with that person or to read a letter from that person. It's amazing, an amazing process to to see. I can only, I've never Mm. witnessed that, but Mm. I can imagine. I know, so in my work, so many people long for that. Yes. Yeah. And have to work with not getting it. Yeah. And the deep. Yeah disappointment mm-hmm. that comes from that. Yeah. So I want to shift gears now and just mm-hmm. ask you about your own experience. Um, what is it like for you to do this work? Do you struggle with repulsion or fear? Uh, how was that so in the beginning, but not so now? What, what's it like? Um, definitely in the beginning. I mean, it has changed over time and, and I love the work I do. I I have to say, I love love all the aspects of the work, and I work with a great team. And it is that team that makes this work possible. Um, we are in and out of each other's offices and in lives, and keep connection all day long. Sexual abuse is about um, disconnection, is about secrecy, and so part of the way that we who work with sexual abuse counteract that is is to have deep connections with the people our our colleagues and to be able to talk openly 
about our cases and about what we're doing. And there are not a lot of places where you can can do that. So it's a very important, important piece. I, I do remember the very, f when I first got into this and um, had a, a beloved colleague who had been running a group for years, and she said, so come along and do this group with me. And I remember walking in the very first day, you know, this, this other woman and I, in a, in a room, um, a tiny room with folding chairs um, in a horribly run-down building with a group of eight men who had been convicted for sex offending. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking in and sitting there and thinking, what have I done? No kidding. <laughs> Is there a security guard nearby? Uh, yeah, right. Anxious. Yeah. Yes, yes, anxious, <coughs> anxious. And, and, you know, really coming to see these men as um, human beings who are in a lot of pain and who know the pain they've caused and um, coming to see that healing really can happen for the offender and for the entire family, that it is a really um, long road to get to that end point, but that when we get to that end point, many of our families say, what a blessing it has been, which, you know, sounds very odd. What a blessing odd. the treatment has been? What a blessing it's been that, that, that this was disclosed. That this was disclosed. Yeah. And that we got the help, and we are a different family than we ever were before, ever. Mm. So... So for the for the for the girl say who mm -hmm. was this the victim and that became the survivor, mm -hmm. I can imagine that's very affirming to her for her courage to speak it. Yes, because yes. initially it's very hard to receive such words. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And what we do know is that disclosing and um, not keeping the secret is what needs to happen in order to stop offending. So. And and what a terrifying thing it is, and mm -hmm. how many people, when they do take that risk, don't get met with yes. believing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um. So when you talk about healing, when you say that you came to see these men as wounded and mm. um, hurting and in pain, um, you know, I'm just trying to follow it in my mind so that I can get there with you. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that they kind of groom this child. There's a special relationship and that they bring their own wounds about not feeling enough or not feeling lovable. Help me help me understand that. How did you go? Because I think wounds of not feeling like enough are practically universal. Mm -hmm. But so how does how does that take you to... You know, pr offending against a child. I wish I could answer that question. If I could answer that question, then we could stop sexual abuse. And unfortunately, I can only answer that question in retrospect, which is what we do with the men we work with, because they, they really have to put together um, a vision of their cycle. They have to be able to identify those aspects. What, what happens? What happens to get me out of feeling as though I'm okay in the world and I'm safe. And then what builds on that until the final acting out. So we do that with the men that, that we work with. But I don't know how to do that before that happens. 
And that's that's meaning the that it's so part. individual. Yes, I see. Yeah. So, because I don't know why somebody chooses, and it is a choice. I want that to be clear. It is a choice to sexually abuse, and I don't know why someone chooses that rather than chooses to go get drunk or steal a car or rob a bank. I don't know. Right, and but do you think they come to know, like their yes. individual aunt yes. reason? Yes. And and what so given that you can't assume what it would be for that individual, what are some of the things that people come to, and as they come to know themselves? What I think, well, and it is individual to each each offender, but they come to know for themselves what are. Um, the thoughts, the feelings that are, and behaviors that are dangerous for them. Dangerous meaning it takes them away from a sense of feeling as though I'm okay in the world. And it can, it, it's a number of things, and it's things involving uh, relationships, partnerships how to be a parent, an employee. There are triggers for these folks in all aspects of their lives. And so they learn how to directly acknowledge those and move away from them rather than letting them take over. I see. So it's interesting because I was thinking what you were going to say was Mm -hmm. that they would start identifying the thought patterns that said to themselves, oh, if I go do this with so-and-so, mm-hmm. I will feel better. Mm-hmm. But no, Mm-mm. what you're saying is identifying what it is that triggers their deep vulnerability. Exactly. What it is that makes them feel like they're not worth anything. Right. That they're a failure, right. that they're unlovable. Right. And right. that if they can work with that, right. then it, then they're not even vulnerable to the rest of the story. Right. That's very helpful. I think mm-hmm. that, that the assumption I might have made and others perhaps is you just like nip the bo- thoughts in the bud about going to the child. Mm. But it, it's before that. And and certainly in the beginning, because we haven't helped them create those skills yet. So in the beginning, we want to make sure that there is no access to a child or to a person who could be their victim. And that's why in the beginning, families are torn apart. Literally, geographically. Literally, literally torn apart. And you yes. recommend that? Yes. Until we can have somebody in the home who can safely supervise and you got to remember that in this family system, nobody saw what was going on. While it was happening. While it was happening. So we go work with the family system and work with, it's usually the mom, who's the non-offending parent, who's now carrying a lot of guilt. And we work with that mom and help her understand, specific to her partner's cycle, what she needs to be looking out for. Mm-hmm. How challenging. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space, and I'm talking to Deb Dana about working with sex offenders. And I want to shift now, since we're kind of already talking about it, to what really works. And um, I'm hearing, so in the beginning, there's a, access is restricted. Access is restricted. Yeah, That's so, absolutely important so, for safety. Mm-hmm. So lay out some of the other steps. Mm-hmm. What helps? Well, um, Prison or jail is not um, the worst thing that can happen. It's it's a real um, wake-up call. It's tough, and, you know, it's hard to be a sex offender in prison, certainly. Um, jail time's easier. Prison's, prison's harder. But 
Um, a long probation, because when they're on probation, they're mandated to treatment. And so there's time. Mm-hmm. So I see after work. probation's over, they get, they're not mandated to treatment anymore. That ends? Th- correct. When uh-huh. their probation is over, their treatment is over. And and if they have not completed treatment, we can extend their probation. So that so we do have have a way of getting the treatment completed. Uh-huh. Um, they probably will will be, because in Maine we have a 10-year or a lifetime registration process. So even when they're off probation, they're still labeled, identified as... A registered offender, which which is tough. It's it's a tough label to carry for the rest of your life. So, um, yeah, right. and along with group treatment, you know, weekly group treatment, which which men go to um, doing the individual work and then doing the family work is really important as well. And the focus of that work, it sounds like I've heard you say two things. One is helping the person develop empathy mm-hmm. and um, communicate that with an apology, mm-hmm. and then secondly, working with their own deepest vulnerability. Yes, yeah, to to heal their own their own parts that are holding um, such pain. And if they if that happens, if they work with their because it seems so disconnected in a way. If they if they work with the parts that might feel so unlovable, that will help them not be an offender. Yes. It's yes. wonderful to hear that because I think mm-hmm. they they don't necessarily seem so obviously mm, connected. Yeah. Yeah. But that's your your deep knowing yes. from doing this work. Yes, yeah. And um, how successful do you feel your work is? I mean, how how do you know when someone's done? Great question. <laughs> um, you know, they're they're, they're sort of um, concrete measures. They've completed um, the major written assignments that that let us know they've done the clarification process. We've done the family work. Um, they can um, talk about their offending without shame taking them over. That's a huge accomplishment. It's that is a huge that accomplishment. That in itself seems yes. like it would be very hard yes. to arrive at. i got to tell you this, this one story about um, a, a man I worked with, and this is a great way of knowing that he was done. He was in a grocery store, and there was a family with a little, a little girl in the aisle in front of him, and he kept going to a different aisle because he didn't want to even be be around. And he went down this aisle, and the family was saying, we're going to the next aisle, and if, if you don't want to come, then we're just leaving you. And they went and left. And he thought about it, and he went, and he talked to that mother and father, and he said, I am a registered sex offender, and you do not need to worry about me, but you need to worry about other people out there, and don't leave your child alone like that. Mm. And he thought the father was going to haul off and punch him, and he just walked away. And a couple hours later, the man came and found him and said, thank you. Thank you for doing that. I will never try and make a point with my child by, by abandoning her again. And I just thought, what a risk he took. And mm. he did that because he felt so strongly about the safety of other people. It's ironic, too, though, because, of course, stranger danger in the mm-hmm. grocery store is not really the threat. Right. But what I'm hearing you say mm-hmm. is that perhaps abandonment mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what that does to the girl yeah. inside yeah. is a deeper threat. Yeah. So we're going to have to end, Deb, but mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, if someone wants to contact the Island Institute for Trauma Recovery, what is your? how do they find you? They can find us at 571-3008. 
That's and my extension is extension 2 if they want to leave me a message. Say it to me one more time. 5713008. And you recommended a book for families. Tell me what Yes, that there is. is a book that's called What's Happening in Our Family and it's written by Dr. Constance Ostis, O S T I S. Wonderful. Mm. Deb Dana, Great. thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to have you at Safe Thanks. Space. This is Dr. Ann on WMPG. This is Safe Space. I've been talking to Deb Dana about working with sex offenders. My thanks tonight to Jen Hodston for the music and to Philip Glass, whose music will be playing for shortly. Uh, if you have a suggestion or request for a future show, please email me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annewmpg at gmail.com. Tune in next Wednesday for Safe Space at 7.30 p.m. Coming up next is Allison with Money Talks.